The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. All right, so you can hear me now, right? Okay, great. So, self-control. This is where we are today, self-control, this, this issue. And 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 8, Lord willing, is where we'll be. We take stock sometimes of our lives, and we see things spinning out of control, and we use it an expression that goes something like this. It's a jungle out there. Right? You ever said that about your life? You look at your life and you say it's a jungle out there. Well, to understand that, to understand why we do that, we have to understand what a jungle is. A jungle is a place that's filled with overgrown vegetation. It's filled with wild animals. And seemingly everything there is trying to kill you or eat you. Right? And sometimes that's the way your life feels. Sometimes it feels as if everything is closing in around you, that, that you just can't get a handle on all the details of your life, and it's just out of control. Sometimes it feels like your, your boss or your kids or your spouse or the, just the demands of, of life are just trying to kill or eat you. And that's hopefully not the case, but, but that's how it feels sometimes. Well, how did we get where we are? Did we start out in a jungle? I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve were first placed where? In a garden. Well, R.C. Sproul said this. He said that a jungle is really just a garden gone wild. And that's exactly the case. God placed man and, and woman into a garden where there was not out-of-control vegetation, but there was, there was vegetation that was lush and that it was, it was manicured. It was controlled. There were not wild animals, but there were domesticated, tame animals. Nothing there was trying to kill or eat anyone. And this is where we find ourselves today, but it was not part of God's original design. I want to today come to this issue of self-control with, with that picture in your heads of a jungle gone wild. Because the reality is for us is if we do not practice self-control, if we don't have self-control in our lives, the garden of our lives will quickly become a jungle. And so with that in mind, if you'll follow along with me as I read in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his, very, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us this morning as we set to, to look into God's word and let's ask God to teach us this morning. So pray with me. Lord, we come to your word and Lord, already we've experienced... Uh, technical difficulties with sound and, and, uh, and, and various things, Lord, I pray, God, that you would keep us from any further distractions. Lord, would you still our hearts and open our, our eyes and open the ears of our hearts, Lord, to be able to truly grasp the truth of your word. 
Lord, we need spiritual nourishment today more than we need the sustenance we will receive at lunch. So God, feed us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to look at three various things out of this passage. First is the problem of self. We would all admit that we have this, this problem of self uh, because we know ourselves better than anybody else. Derek Primer said that self is one of the toughest weeds that grows in the garden of our lives. And that's exactly right. Uh, in, in verse 4, down toward the, the second half of verse 4, we see what is the, uh, the picture of the problem of self. Before we look at the rest of the passage, I just want to show you here that this is the problem. In verse 4 it says, The corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Those last two words capture our biggest problem in life. Our biggest problem in life is, is not outside of us. We tend to think that it is. But the reality is, sin for us is an inside job. We sometimes think that our biggest problem is our spouse or our kids or our parents, maybe our job or our boss, our neighbor, our school, our teachers, our culture around us. We sometimes look at those and we, we say things like, if my spouse would fill in the blank. And right now, maybe in your head, you're doing that. We say things like, my kids always, and fill in the blank. We say, my parents never, and we use these absolutes. And in doing so, we are pointing to the fact that we believe that our biggest problem is not us, but it is outside of us, that we can place the blame somewhere else. But the Bible squarely and definitively tells us here that our biggest problem is not outside of us. It is with our sinful desire. It is the lusts of our heart. It is the cravings of our lives that get us into trouble. It is not those outside, but it is us. I want you to think about how easily we are so often led, led away and led astray by self. I just went through and, and used some, uh, some words here to, to think about this. We are often self-absorbed. We are self-conscious. We are self-deprecating, self-gratifying, self-justifying, self-loving, sometimes self-loathing. Self-medicating, self-pitying, self-righteous, and we are self-sufficient. All of these things, if you just go and, and you Google and you put self and look at what comes up, the way I literally came to this is I, I typed in self hyphen or dash hyphen, whatever that is, and, and every letter of the alphabet and just went through. And literally there is almost some description of some sort of plague that deals with the self for every single letter in the alphabet. I left many of those out because I just didn't have time. We think that our biggest problem is outside of us, but our biggest problem really is the self. We live in a culture where we have invented selfies because we are selfish. And I don't mean selfish in the way that you might think I mean it. I mean we are prone to self. We tend toward the self. We wake up thinking about ourselves. We go to bed at night thinking about ourselves. All day long, we are thinking about ourselves. We drive down the, the highways and the interstates and we think, everybody else is in my way. Everybody at your job is not doing what they should be doing to make your job go smoother. In your school, you should be more noticed than you are. There are we, we, we are selfish to the core. This microphone is going to make me 
become very selfish in a hurry. How many times have you told yourself something like, never again? Around a particular vice, whatever it is that plagues you, your temptation is probably not the same thing that is my temptation, but we've all got something that seems to plague us. And how many times have you said, never again? This time will be different, only to find out that you go right back into that time and time again. You see, the reality for us is Alistair Begg said it well when he said, self-effort comes disguised as self-control. Many of us come to this issue, this topic of self-control, and think that surely what the preacher is going to say is simply try harder. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be more disciplined. But that is not the message of self-control from the biblical perspective. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man or woman without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And what you and I don't understand is that in biblical times, the walls of the city were crucial. They were the, sometimes the only defense against the invaders, those that would attack. And here the Bible tells us that without self-control, a man or a woman is like a city broken into and left without walls. My question to you this morning is, does anybody here feel like a city without walls? Like there's this thing in your life, this particular vice, this particular temptation that just seems to run just over you at will. It seems to be the thing that, that, that calls and you answer. You seem to be defenseless against it. Well, Galatians 5, 22 through 23 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is, after a bunch, self-control. And so this is the next point in this, is that self-control is not something that you and I are going to will ourselves into. This is not about self-effort. This is about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not produced by law or strength within yourself. The fruit of the Spirit is produced by life, the life of Christ that lives within us. The the tree is not the one who can brag about the, the, the fruit uh, that it produces in a given year. It is, it is the one who made the tree, who, the, who's, who, who supplies the roots, and that is the case for us as well. We must abide in the, branches, or in the vine, and the vine is Christ. So, second point is, not after the, the problem of self, here's the second point, and this is a major one. The self does not produce self-control. The self does not produce self-control. Verses 3 and 4 here in 2 Peter 1 show us three resources that belong to every single believer. And in verse 4, we read these little words that seemingly are insignificant, but they are anything but. We read these three resources that belong to every believer, and in verse 4 it says, So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world of sinful desire. It is through these resources that God has given to us that God provides that we will indeed bear the fruit of self-control. It is through them, verse 4 says, that we become partakers of the divine nature. I would contrast divine nature with sinful desire. Those two things are directly opposed to one another. The, the, The nature, the attributes of God 
are directly opposed to the desires of our flesh. This is what we learned in the very beginning sermon in this series. Galatians 5, before 22 and 23, tells us that there is a battle, there is a war that is going on inside each one of us. That the flesh is warring against the spirit. This is what is pictured here. He gives us these resources so that we may become partakers of the divine nature. The divine nature is simply a a, a clever way of of summing up what we've been talking about all summer long. The divine nature are are those things that, that characterize God. He is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, Self-control, I probably left one out or got them in the wrong order. But you know what I mean. These are the things, this is the divine nature. And here when the Bible says that it's through these resources that I'm about to give you, it's through these that we become partakers. Meaning, we become partners with. We, We have in common. We take up. And that's the whole point of the fruit of the Spirit is that our lives, as we trust the Lord and abide in Christ, begin to reflect God as He is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We become partakers. We, begin, we, we become more and more like God. So, what are these three re- resources? If you miss this, you will walk away saying, all the pastor told me was, try harder. But these three resources are what will allow you to take up self-control. The indicative here will supply the imperative. So what are these three resources? Number one, God's power. God's power, there in verse 3, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Notice here, God is no miser. God is not cheap. He has spared no expense to make sure that we have every possible thing that we could need for whatever life brings our way. That's the point. When he says here, he's, given to, he's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Life here has in, in picture both eternal life in heaven one day, but also the eternal life that has begun already for the believer. That in the here and now, he's given us power for every single thing that could come our way. Paul said it also in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, when Paul said, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you, you may abound in every good work. In, 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 in this short little verse there, in, in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, I guess 29 words or something like that. Five times he uses either all or every. God has given us his power. What that means for you and I is that you and I can't blame God for our sinful choices. For our lack of self-control, we cannot say, but God, you made me this way. We cannot say, like the man that I grew up with, who was a Sunday school teacher of mine, who one day when I was working with him after high school at a, at a secular job and he was, he was uh, involved in fornication with a, with, with a lady and I confronted him about it as an 18-year-old, he told me, God knows how I am. God made me this way. He would not expect me to live contrary to this. He did not read 
2 Peter 1, nor 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We cannot blame our lack of self-control on God, for God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. The word here that the Bible uses for power is dunamis. It is where we get our word dynamite. Now, as a kid, listen, kids in the room, this is one of those times where I'm going to tell you something I did as a kid, and this is not when you do what I did, okay? So this is parents... I'm sorry, but when I was a kid, when I was a boy, I was a typical boy, you used to be able to buy fireworks pretty easy. And I'd go buy these M80s. Anybody, all the men in the room, M80s, right? You know, yeah, Kenny, thank you. Kenny, amen, John back there. All right, so I would take these G.I. Joe figures. These, you know, they weren't dolls. I did not play with dolls. I'd take my little G.I. Joe men, and I would strap them to these M80s, and I would place them out somewhere, and I would light the wick, and I would run away and hide, and I would watch this M80 blow this G.I. Joe guy to smithereens. And I'd go back, and I'd investigate, and I'd say, oh, look at this, parts are here and there. That's the picture I want you to have. That when, when this particular vice, when this particular temptation comes your way, when Satan tempts you with this, and you say, I'm powerless to defeat this. I just feel like I'm a city without walls. I want you to have the picture that my little M80 that destroyed a G.I. Joe figure is nothing compared to the dunamis of God that he has supplied to you to blow up this vice that wants to take you away from God. God has supplied his power to us. That's the first resource. The second is... Not only God's power, but God's person. God's person we see in the second part of verse 3 when it says, Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. This is speaking directly of Jesus Christ. The way that you and I came to know the Lord was one day when we weren't looking for God, when we did not one day just simply say, You know, I think I'll become a Christian today. One day, the Spirit of God awakened our eyes to the glory of and the excellence of Christ. This is what it says here, is that through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. The word knowledge here is the word epignosis. It's, it's different than the simple word for, for knowledge, which is gnosis. Gnosis simply means simple knowledge, but here epignosis means this deep, thorough, complete knowledge. And here when it, when it says that He has granted to us all his divine power for all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. It's speaking of this knowledge of Jesus Christ that is full, that is deep. He has not merely called us to a list of doctrines. God has not simply called us to memorize a bunch of verses. He's not called us simply to store a bunch of things about him up here. Instead, what he's called us to is to know him here, and then he works that knowledge into our hearts. And he motivates us. He charges us. He brings life to us that wants to please him and live for him. You see, even the demons have orthodox belief. Even the demons know him in, in that way. They know all sorts of things about him, but they don't 
epignosis him. They don't know him in a deep and a full saving way. Key to practicing self-control, don't miss this, is saving faith in Christ. For I want you to notice that that in the first part of verse 3, that God's power does not come to us apart from knowledge of him. Instead, it comes to us through knowledge of him. So if you don't know Christ and you're not a believer, while you may experience levels of discipline in your life for various events, you will not know self-control in the way the Bible speaks of it without a, a, a knowledge of him in saving faith. Because his power comes through salvation. God's person is the second resource that we have been supplied. The third is this. God's power, God's person, and God's promises. You like how I did that there? A little easy to remember, a little alliteration there. God's promises. In verse 4, it says, By which he has granted to us his, very, his precious and very great promises. You say, well, what are some of the things that God has promised us? Well, just quickly, and this is not at all an exhaustive list, but I just thought through some of these things. He promises that one day we'll be like him. That we'll be like God. It doesn't mean that we're going to be God. It doesn't mean that we're going to ha- you know, have omnipresence and omniscience and all those things. But in our character, in, in, in our hearts, we will be like him in the in the outworking of our hearts in our lives we would be like him he promises this he also promises that there is right now no more condemnation against those who are in christ so when satan comes and says who are you kidding yeah you may be fooling those people but you can't fool yourself you know who you are you know what you do God here promises to us, Jesus promises there is right now for those who believe in Christ no condemnation against them. He promises that one day Christ will come again. He promises that this world will not be all there is, that heaven waits on the other side. My family and I were having a conversation, and my daughter, who is the one who brought this up to me the other day, watching my, my mother and my father care for for my sister, who's can basically confined to a wheelchair now, and, and raising uh, her son, my nephew, and how in what should be their retirement years where they should be able to travel and do all those, th- those things, they, they can't. They can't do any of that, but you never hear them complain. And, and my daughter said to me the other day, you know, they're displaying a faith that this life is not all there is. They're living for the next world. They're clinging to this promise that God gives to us. Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. Jesus promises that justice will be accomplished, that one day sin and Satan will be put away. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 20 tells us that for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So notice here that It is not only God's power, but also God's promises that come through and by his person. You can't have either of those without a knowledge of him. You know, where do we get these promises? We get these promises from scripture. John Piper one time was talking in a sermon about reading scripture. And and having every time, every day, having a time where you get alone with God. And I've shared this before, but I think it's so good. He he talked about that when you read the scriptures, that you should sit down and not quit reading the scriptures until you come across a particular promise 
that God makes for the believer. And that when you find that promise, that you should dwell on it all day long. That you should hold it out in front of you like a carrot that pulls you into righteousness and faith and trust all day long. And, and, and the reason he said that is because this is exactly what sin does. This vice that you can't get control over, this temptation, doesn't it hold out promises before you? If, man, if you only do this, think about how happy you're going to be. Think about how good you're going to feel. Think about how much pleasure you'll have. It holds out this promise, but does it ever deliver? Oh, it may deliver for a moment, but it cannot deliver beyond that moment because the happiness will fade. There is only one way to find true joy and contentment, and it is in Christ. And so here, the Bible tells us what John Piper is pointing out is that we must fight desire with desire. That instead of letting sin hold out this carrot in front of us and promise these things so that it pulls us over into this, that we must be diligent to go to the Word of God and find these promises of God and hold those out in front of us so that this becomes the larger desire that pulls us away from this desire. And we hold it out so that we are drawn further along into following God. We fight desire with desire by clinging to His promises. The self does not produce self-control. God's power, God's person, and God's promises are what give us, are what produce self-control. But, here's the third point, this is it. The third point is, while the self does not produce self-control, the self must practice self-control. We're called to it. You say, well, how do those things go together? Well, verse 5 tells us, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with, and then he goes through this list of virtues. Make every effort. You know, after spending that time there and seeing God's power and God's, God's person and God's promises, we come to this, verse 5, make every effort. It seems illogical. We look at this and we say, doesn't God have this? I mean, does God really need my effort in this? Can't God just simply deliver? Shouldn't I just sit back and let God handle it? Well, wouldn't it be nice if it worked that way? I mean, it would be so nice if we could just simply say, let go and let God. Which is a popular cliche, which sounds really good, looks good on a bumper sticker, but it is not at all what we're called to. I want to remind you that we're not talking here about justification. We're not talking about salvation. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. God does it all. But the Bible teaches that our sanctification, our becoming like Christ, is a joint project between us and Him. That's what Philippians 2 tells us. That, that Philippians 2 verses 12 through 13 says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. In that, we see God saying, Work. Put forth effort. Go after this thing. And as you're doing so, remember that it's me that's giving you the desire to do that. It's, it's me that's giving you the purpose in it. You know, self-control, this making every effort here, when we talk about self-control, the, the word literally means the power to control the will to restrain it, and, and to carry out what needs to be carried out. Thank God it is not our power. 
The Bible here is not saying pull out of your resources somewhere the will to control yourself. Instead, he's telling us, I'm giving you the power, now control the will. We must practice it. Let me give you a couple of illustrations here, biblical uh, examples where, where we see this uh, played out well and not so well. The first is Potiphar. In the Old Testament, and I think in uh, Genesis 39, uh, Potiphar, uh, Joseph is sold into slavery, winds up there in Egypt, winds up in Potiphar's house, uh, household, and uh, Potiphar comes to the place where he trusts him so much that he puts him over in his entire household. The only thing that he has withheld from him is his own wife. Well, the Bible tells us that Joseph is handsome, that he's good-looking. And that Potiphar's wife, and Potiphar's out busy all the time, that as, as Joseph is, is there doing what he's supposed to be doing for his master, that she notices him. And she makes no subtleties in her advances toward him. I mean, she, she wants him. And she makes that very clear. He refuses, he refuses, and one day she grabs him while, while he's there in her room and pulls him toward herself. You know what Joseph's response was? He didn't reason. In that moment, he doesn't say, you know what, nobody's going to know. Potiphar's out. Nobody's here. He trusts me. No, in that moment, he realizes that he must flee. The Bible tells us in Genesis 39 that he, he flees so fast that he leaves his coat behind in her grasp. And he realizes he cannot stay in that situation, that he cares too much about the glory of God than he does about his own pleasure for the moment. And he flees, he runs away. The, the contrasted example would be David. 2 Samuel chapter 11, when David should have been out to battle. It's in the time of the year when kings go out to battle. He sends his army, he sends his, his generals out, and they're fighting the war. But David decides in this time, I'm going to stay behind. I'm a little tired, I just want to stay behind. And it says that he's there in the palace, and one day he gets up from his, his lazy boy, and, and he goes out on his roof, and he, and he looks out over, over his kingdom, and he sees on a roof down below him a woman bathing. And he sees Bathsheba, and she's beautiful. And instead of fleeing, he says, who's that? Well, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Go get her. Bring her to me. And before you know it, he has, he's committed adultery with her, and she becomes pregnant, and he tries to cover it up by trying to have her husband killed. These are two opposite examples of self-control done well and self-control done poorly. You see, Joseph knew that God had supplied the power, the promises. While he did not know the person yet because the Messiah had not come, he was counting on that and he said, I will pick up self-control and I will practice it. David said, oh, I know God's powerful. I know God's promises. But David refused to pick them up. And David just yielded himself to it. And David in that moment became a city without walls because he refused to practice self-control. Verse 8 tells us in, in our passage this morning, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this has been the whole summer series, is the, the fruit of the Spirit. 
What we're hoping for as a church, what I'm hoping for as your pastor, is that not only would I become uh, more fruitful in my life and abiding in Christ and seeing these things coming out in my life, but I'm hoping these things for you as well. That we as a congregation at the individual level and at the corporate level would be more loving and filled with joy and peace and patience and go down the list. The Bible here just tells us specifically in 2 Peter that if these qualities, if we're picking up what God says we are to walk in and putting them into practice, it will keep us from being unfruitful. See, if you miss the the middle section of this sermon where I talked about that we don't produce self-control and you only hear me say we must practice it, then you'll walk out of here doing it in your own strength. But these two things must go together. We don't operate from our own resources. We operate from the resources of God. But we must operate from there. We must pick them up and practice them. Otherwise, we will become like Jude 12. And we will become waterless clouds that are simply blown around by the wind. We've all seen times where we've, we've had a lot of rain lately. But we've all gone through summers where we didn't have much rain and we were in a drought and things were dry. And you step out in your yard and it just crunches underneath your feet. And, and you, you go out in the afternoon and sometimes you see these clouds above and you think, oh, maybe today, maybe today it's going to rain. And you just see the wind just blow this cloud across the sky. Is that the picture of what we want to be in our community? A world out there that so desperately needs to know what genuine Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They're all looking for it. They need it genuinely. Do we want to be waterless clouds? Where they look and they say, well, maybe I'll find some hope here. Only to have us blow by them and bring nothing to their lives. Jude 12 says that we will become like fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, and uprooted. Church, I would implore you to practice the disciplines, to practice self-control. If I could say anything to you, it's this. To be fruitful people, we must make every effort to live lives of joy and peace and love and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control in God's power, through God's person, And by God's promises, may we be fruitful in the pursuit of his glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. May it not return void. God, I pray that you would take it and, Lord, that you would plant it where it will grow and produce fruit. Lord, would you penetrate hard hearts, break them up and plow them. Lord, would you send the rain of your spirit to water and to nurture them? God, would you bring forth the fruit of the gospel? Lord, for the person who's sitting here today and who've who've heard this sermon, who does not know the person of Christ, Lord, today, would you bring him home to them? Lord, today, would you show them his glory and his excellence? Would you open their eyes to him? And, Lord, that they might turn from sin and trust you. Lord, for those of us who are here and we are believers, we are filled with the Spirit of God, which you produce fruit in our lives by teaching us that it's not in our own strength, but it's from the resources that you give. But, Lord, help us to walk in them. 
for your own glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on what's been said and to respond appropriately. Um, I don't know exactly how maybe God has spoken to you today. God uses his words to come home to the hearts of his people in unique ways. I don't know what's going on particularly in your life, but perhaps he's going to bring his word to bear in a unique way. Respond. Respond as he directs. I will tell you this, that God's will, if you are here today as an unbeliever, I think what God desires is that you would turn from your sin and trust in him as Lord and Savior. He desires that none would perish. John 3.16 tells us that whosoever believes has eternal life. And so today, would you turn from your sin and trust Christ? I can give you that general call dependent on the specific call of the Spirit. I'm asking you to respond to the person and the work of Christ. If you'd like to know more about that, I'll be seated on the front row. I'd love for you to come speak with me. If I can help you in any certain way, please come see me. But let's respond as we sing and worship with our words and with our lives. You come as God leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.